coming up. You might be able to hide for a while, but we're going to find you, even if you're not here. But I hope that today might bring a little bit of solace to you know that the animal that did this is no longer on this earth. For Vault Studios, I'm Will Johnson. You're listening to The Daily Crime. After more than 30 years of searching for a serial killer with ties to cases in Kentucky and Indiana, investigators say they have identified the killer. This case really highlights the generational dedication of the Elizabethtown Police Department. Our detectives take each case personal. And they never lose faith. They never give up hope that one day their case will see closure. We'll never know what the killer was thinking. We'll never learn any of the whys of his actions. And that's just where we sit today. I'm joined by investigative reporter and anchor Shay McAllister at WHAS 11 in Louisville, Kentucky. Shay, thanks for being here. Hey, Will. Thanks for having me. Shay, this was a big announcement last week. I know that you and the station have been all over it. But, you know, before you heard about this announcement coming down, had you been familiar with these murder cases from the late 80s? I mean, I I know it's it's been a while, but certainly cases that have been on people's minds through the years. Well, actually, I've covered a lot of cold cases from this area, but I had not specifically covered any of these. When I heard that we had some big news coming on an I-65 serial killer, I, of course, was fascinated and started trying to find out what cases might be from our area. We have one case right here just south of Louisville. And it really gripped people's hearts back in the 80s when it happened. It resurfaced again in 2010 when DNA testing became a more realistic option. And then, of course, now, um, with some sense of closure, everybody's paying attention. So let me take a step back. Let's talk about these three known murder cases. There was an assault, I believe. And let's go back to 1987 when this all started. Sure. So the very first case was the local case here in Radcliffe, Kentucky, that's just about 50 minutes south of Louisville, a very rural area. That's where the woman, Vicki Heath, was from. And she was working as an overnight motel clerk at a Super 8, um, a couple of minutes away from her home in Harding County. It was right off I-65. She was doing it to make a little bit of extra money for her family. And she went into work in 1987, one night, just like any other night. But that next morning, when guests started arriving to check out, people needed someone. There was no one there. And eventually, the hotel manager was called, police were called, and they found her body dumped behind a dumpster outside of the motel. Looking for any type of evidence that they might find, anything that might be broken, anything that might be tore up, or any piece of evidence or any piece of property that the person might have left. And at the time, and then throughout the the following decades, really, the investigation did not lead to anyone. So no, they had no suspects right away. They did know that she was raped and she was shot twice in the head. So they were able to collect ballistics evidence. They were able to collect DNA. But police saw this as a crime of opportunity. They were sure that this was someone just passing through off I-65. There was money missing from the register. They saw it as a robbery. And they did not have any idea who did it. They hoped that by saving that DNA, that someday they might find out. But then there were two other murders, correct, that were very similar, right? 
Right. So two years later, 1989, um, miles up I-65, two other women working in two other motels as overnight clerks right off the highway were raped and robbed and shot twice in the head. It was almost exactly like the case down here in Kentucky, but at the time, nobody connected it to the case in Kentucky. Those two murders happened on the same night. They were connected right away. The Kentucky case was not. Yeah, it's almost like one of those cases that today with police departments in close contact, you'd almost feel like they would have made that connection a little bit quicker or they would make it a little bit quicker. Absolutely. Um, Just by the internet, there was a possibility that somebody would have seen something that looked familiar. But back then, there was no connection. They saw the Indiana police were focused on the two cases in Indiana. Police in Kentucky were focused on this case. They weren't connected at all for almost 20 years. Okay. So 20 years later, and is that when we started hearing this term, the I-65 killer, and that this was possibly a serial killer? Yes. So 20 years later, DNA technology um, had advanced, and they were able to be entering DNA into these systems that covered law enforcement cases from across the country. At that time, DNA linked that first murder in Kentucky to the two in Indiana. They still didn't know who the suspect was, but they knew those cases were connected, and there was then a fourth case. Okay, tell me about that that fourth case and what police were able to figure out. The fourth case was in the early 90s in Columbus, Indiana. In this case, a woman was raped, she was robbed, and she was stabbed, but she survived. And she was able to provide a sketch of the person. And so in the early 2010 time, when all of these cases were linked by DNA, that was the sketch actually used Uh, to have some picture of the killer. And that's when the term I-65 killer was born. And and for people who were not familiar with these cases, I feel like that's what we started seeing last week. We heard that an announcement was coming, and all of a sudden this this sketch, that's that sketch from around 2010, right? Correct. And that was the only sign of the killer. Of course, there was the DNA, but it hadn't been attached to anyone just yet. Everyone was just waiting to find out who this person was. You know, were they still alive? Were they connected to any other crimes? Shay, last week, investigators made that announcement. Who do they say killed these three women? What's his name? And what's happened to this, this, this killer? We finally learned from police at this big announcement that the I-65 killer is a man named Harry Ed Greenwell. He was born here in Louisville, Kentucky in 1944, and he died in Lansing, Iowa in 2013. According to his obituary, he died from cancer. So he is now officially accused of raping and murdering three women and then assaulting a fourth That fourth woman was so key in this case because she was able, she survived her attack. She remembered what he looked like and described him to police. And Will, it was so interesting to see the sketch and then see a picture of Greenwell because there was some striking similarities. The victim had described his bright green eyes and one lazy eye and then shaggy hair that kind of went across his face. And all three of those characteristics were apparent in his photograph, which was just released to the public for the first time. But is it safe to say that with the photo alone, they might not have found him? What what really sealed the deal was this 
was genetic genealogy and a 99.99% match, I understand. Yes, absolutely. They had the photo for a decade before they were able to identify him. The photo was not what sealed the deal here. In 2019, the FBI got involved, and it was kind of the start of using genealogy and um, investigative genealogy to solve unsolved crimes. So state and local officials called in federal agency, the FBI, to submit this DNA that they knew was linked to three murders and one assault and see if there was any way that they could make a connection. Now, they didn't get into the details of exactly how they were able to do that. Um, They told us an overview of how the process works, which is using historical documents, um, genetic testing materials, and DNA, but they wouldn't specifically tell us You know, it's not that uncommon now. Over the last year, we've heard of multiple serial killers being caught through this kind of genetic testing, but it's not always the serial killer whose DNA they have. Sometimes it is another member of the family, and they're able to draw it back to that person. And so we don't know how it happened in this case. We just know that in the end, they were able to get Greenwell's DNA. And like you said, it was a 99.999% match to the women who had been murdered years earlier. You mentioned that he was from the Louisville area, died of cancer, but he had a long criminal history. Yes, he did. Um, Police say that he was in and out of jail often. They provided us with a black and white mugshot of him from many, many years ago. They also said he actually escaped from prison twice. So he was very familiar with police. He was on police radar. Some people have said, well, should you guys have been considering him earlier? But the reality, and police say, it was that they just didn't have enough to go on. They they didn't have him on their radar for this type of crime. But this is a case where, again, we've got a guy who police believe killed three women in the late 80s. And then we don't really have any other indication that that he struck again, but they do believe there, there could be more murders, could be more assaults. They're looking into that. Yeah. And I think that that's what makes this so fascinating is that not only is this almost a, a case closed, a little bit of closure for the four families that have been waiting for decades to find out what happened in their cases, but this also could be closure for an unlimited amount of other families. Right now, FBI and local and state officials are working with detectives from local and smaller police departments up and down I-65 to find out if there are other unsolved cases, other victims that could be connected. And now that they have this DNA and this genealogy evidence um, as part of their investigation, it would be pretty simple to link him to those cases if they had DNA. I will say it wasn't um, incredibly common for police to collect DNA back in the late 80s and early 90s. In these specific cases, luckily, the departments did, and they were hopeful that it would somehow someday be used, even though they didn't even know how or when or what that would look like. Shay, have family members of the victims, have they said much of anything? So one of the daughters of one of the victims was at the announcement learning the name of her mother's killer, and she was able to reflect on the news and talk with the media, sharing that it's been a really complicated process 
to hear this news and to move forward from it. In some ways, she feels like they do have a little bit of closure now. They know who killed their mom. But in other ways, because he's dead, there's really no justice there. And she said that she's been struggling with that. She also said that she is hopeful um, that she's able to move forward now. And she is an attorney. She has a family of her own. Her mom was killed 30 years ago. She said, you know, life has certainly moved on. But um, she thinks now, instead of wondering who or why or when, she can just focus on the good memories of her mom. And that's what she's going to try to do. Shay McAllister at WHAS 11 in Louisville, Kentucky. Thanks, as always, for talking to us. Sure. Thanks for having me, Will. You've been listening to The Daily Crime, a podcast from Vault Studios. Be sure to check out our other podcasts, including Bardstown, The Officer's Wife, and our weekly show, True Crime Chronicles. For Vault Studios, I'm Will Johnson.